Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland, driving business success through innovative training and upskilling. This is News Talk. Welcome to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. You can get in contact with us by emailing takingstock at newstalk.com or on Twitter at takingstockmt. Coming up on today's programme, Canada is home to millions of people who claim Irish heritage and in recent years it's opened its doors to a new generation of Irish people. We'll be talking about our relationship with the Canadian ambassador to Ireland. Turkey's long-time leader Recep Erdogan is pressing ahead with his economic war of independence despite soaring inflation and a failing currency. We'll ask what all that means for the Turkish people. And a more sustainable Christmas present, we'll talk to the man behind the company aiming to plant 300,000 Irish native trees in Irish soil for every garment that they create. But first up today, Ireland and Canada have a long history of cooperation, particularly on international affairs. And in 2016, their census showed that over four and a half million Canadian residents recorded an ethnic Irish connection. That's actually a higher proportion than Americans who claim Irish ancestry. So to discuss those long and enduring bonds and to learn a little bit more about what's happening in Canada now and how our relationship is currently, I'm joined by Nancy Smythe, who's Canadian ambassador to Ireland. Nancy, you're very welcome and thanks for joining us. Thanks very much, Mandy. It's great to be here. Now, Ambassador, you're the first female Canadian ambassador to Ireland. This is your first mission, I understand. Can you just talk to us a little bit about how you ended up getting this mission to Ireland? Great. Thanks very much. Yeah, that's right. Uh, uh, in a long, uh, long list of men, the first woman and, and really delighted to be here. Um, I have been working with uh, Global Affairs Canada, which is our equivalent of uh, foreign ministry, uh, for a number of years, and uh, at a certain point in time, you know, put in my name to apply, and you get to you get to put in, uh, you know, a, few, a selection of a few countries, and indeed, I had Ireland on that list. Um, I've had other international experience uh, outside of the department with the Crown Corporation called the International Development Research Centre. Um, so, just really honoured, uh, had the opportunity to be uh, to be named to come to Ireland. And as you say, my first mission, but have lived overseas a few times before, including uh, including in Africa and South Africa. Well, taking up a mission like this in a pandemic must have been a challenge in itself. Could you talk to us about what that experience no, was like? Absolutely. In fact, uh, at the time that I, I, I applied, there was no knowledge of uh, uh, COVID-19 at that time. Uh, coming in uh, to a posting at a time like this is very difficult. At the same time, I really feel for my colleagues who have been in these postings, uh, you know, for even longer. So there would have been those who would have been at this for, you know, a year plus. Uh, but coming in, uh, arrived in April, don't have the chance to sort of meet my team all in person and to meet some colleagues, but happily came uh, in April, which meant that uh, through some of the milder months, able to do some activities uh, outside, lots of uh, courtesy call walks and uh meetings at a distance, but it has been a challenge. Absolutely. Our jobs are about uh, building relationships and not uh, easy to always be doing that uh, uh, on Zoom calls and, uh, you know, in, in our digital world, though, we continue to get better at that. Yeah, and it's an experience that a lot of people have had, you know, that disconnect with uh, their colleagues from work. But you, you know, arriving into a new country with a whole new set of colleagues, that that must have been a challenge in itself. You've seen how Ireland has handled the pandemic and how we've tried to cope with COVID-19 
Could you just talk to us about what the experience has been like on that in Canada? How have they dealt with it? How has it impacted things there? It's been really tough, you know, uh, both in Ireland and Canada and around the world. I think uh, both Canada and Ireland have been very similar in that uh, once we were fortunate enough to, to find ourselves uh, with the vaccines, uh, you would see a fairly high level of trust in public health systems. So I think uh, Ireland and Canada have both achieved really high levels of vaccination. Canada, uh, we're at about uh, 86% uh, of those over 12 who are fully vaccinated. So I think both Ireland and Canada would appear uh, higher on on the list uh, in terms of uh, in terms of that. But of course, we've seen uh, you know deaths uh, in both of our countries. Uh, and, and that has uh, taken a toll. And of course, not only uh, sort of the physical challenges, but also the mental health challenges that I think we're seeing, including, you know, with with uh, with young people and with uh, with parents, with children and so on. And then our economies have similarly been hit uh, significantly. And so, uh, you know, we're 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 certainly uh, hoping for uh, a return to stronger economies uh, during this period now as, as businesses still remain in an uncertain period, mm-hmm. uh, whether those be in the hospitality business uh, or in other sectors. So it's I, I would say that it's been uh, I think I think uh, Ireland's taken a fairly cautious approach. Mm-hmm. And I would say Canada has uh, similarly uh, taken a fairly cautious approach, but happily in both in both cases, you would see public health uh public health systems that have been able to achieve really remarkable levels of vaccination in our populations. And Ambassador, the U.S.-Canadian border, that's fully open to vaccinated, is that right? The uh, U.S. border has been has been uh, reopened. There's now, uh, as a result of the more recent uh, uh, variant, obviously, that's at play, uh, a return to some uh, restrictions and some conditions for that travel. But I would have to say uh, at at, uh, at my age and with so many Canadians that live within such a close distance of the U.S. border to have ever conceived that we would have had a border between mm. our two countries that would have been close and obviously, you know, huge impacts on both of our economies that would have still allowed for essential travel back and forth in terms of goods. But yes, largely, you know, that those board, th- that border remained uh, closed for a very long time. Now, of course, you mentioned uh, how the government have handled the pandemic there and you, your country had a, a, an election in the middle of it and your Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, uh, started his third term in office with a major rehaul of his cabinet earlier this year. Could you um, talk to us a little bit about how the Canadian government is structured and what are the main issues that are facing them at the moment, just to give our listeners a flavour of what things are like there? Sure. Um, yes, as you said, uh, we did have an election uh, that uh, was held uh, with, the, with the results on September 20th. So we are uh, in a minority government right now in Canada. Um, as you said, a new cabinet has been formed Um and uh, we have had a return to what's uh, the 44th parliament and uh, with a new speech from the throne. And as you would imagine, uh, some of the issues that are front and center remain some of those that would have been before. And that includes obviously a focus around uh, health and well-being and recovery from uh, COVID-19 and all of those measures. It also includes a focus around uh, climate change and uh, uh, measures that would be taken, uh, including in, in connection with COP, to, uh, to be responding both domestically in terms of meeting targets, uh, mm. ambitious targets, but also in terms of those global commitments. 
um, and then uh, a number of other areas uh, relating to prosperity and, and some issues that are front and center right now, uh, which will resonate, I think, with the with the audience here, our uh, focus are on issues such as housing and childcare. It's similar to, to what we're facing here on the housing front. And also another issue that we we're both dealing with at the moment uh, stems from that um, climate change agenda, which is the energy security piece. And um, I'm sure you've seen here that there's been an ongoing debate about that and the transition to a low carbon society. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something that resonates in Canada, doesn't it, as well? Oh, absolutely. And I think uh, this this um, issue, it's been really interesting to see in the polling in Canada. Um, before we would have had this latest outbreak of the variant, we would have seen polling that actually would have had for Canadians climate change as actually top of the agenda, even in some cases coming uh, with COVID coming a second. And so it has really reached, I think, the forefront <laughs> Of Canadians, and and I would guess, uh, you know, uh, in some cases in Ireland, uh, uh, the front of uh, the front of our minds, um, we would have set uh, similar to uh, Ireland, a very ambitious targets of reducing our GHG um, and achieving the net zero by twenty fifty. Um, we would have also seen uh, really an important focus also around biodiversity in the Canadian context, so that climate change and the focus on biodiversity and a whole set of measures uh, that will both be uh, relating to sort of the behaviors, Mm. um, carbon tax as an example, um, but also uh, would be looking at clean tech, I think, as you were suggesting, and and ways in which we're going to transition companies to, uh, you know, to to and and capabilities uh, towards clean, clean energies. And uh, indeed, that's an area that we're hoping very much would be uh, opportunities for the broader Canada EU relationship and, mm-hmm. and Ireland in terms of looking at uh, at collaboration in that area. If you're just joining us, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston. We're talking to Canadian Ambassador to Ireland, Nancy Smythe. You mentioned the EU-Canada relationship there and the EU, in fact, are the, the second most important partner after the US to uh, Canada. So w- we might talk a little bit about... Um, the CETA legislation uh, that impacts that trading relationship, if, if you wouldn't mind turning your attention to that for a second. I'm just from an Irish perspective, it was due to go before uh, our parliament, the House of the Oireachtas, in December 2020, but it has been delayed. Do you have, um, just could you give our listeners an overview on what that legislation is designed to do and how it would impact us from a business perspective? Right. So essentially... Um you mentioned the term ratification. So this is an agreement. It's essentially a free trade agreement that would have been under development for many, many years. I think it was something onwards of six to eight years that would have been under development and negotiated between Canada um, and the European Union, and for which um, there was um, now coming on for four years a provisional application. So in the case of Canada, we have ratified um, the trade agreement and a number of European states have ratified, and there are others that have not yet ratified. But there are only a uh, small number that haven't ratified, isn't that right? And we're one of them. There are 27 countries, and I believe that it is about 15 that have ratified so far. Uh, so I think, you know, from Canada's perspective, um, I think this becomes then, um, I mean, what, what what I think was really useful was that there was, uh, as you mentioned, an Oireachtas process. There was a committee report that was undertaken 
um, Canada have the chance to come before that, uh, that committee and to really talk about um, the benefits that Canada has seen as a result of the agreement. I think, uh, as our Minister uh, for Trade has said, the, the numbers tell a really important story. We've seen um, well over 30% growth in trade between our countries, uh, increase in investment between our countries during this four years of the provisional agreement. Yeah, because some of the um, provisions within the agreement are being implemented, of course, on an ongoing basis. That's right. So we would have virtually almost tariff-free uh, exchanges that would be happening. Uh, between our countries, and we would also have a number of uh, measures that are taking place to ensure that we've got discussions happening on issues that are of importance to both of us, uh, which include areas such as uh, the environment, uh, gender equality, um, and other provisions within within the agreement. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, um, for, for Ireland and for those other countries, there are democratic processes that we respect, mm. you know, that need to be followed in terms of decisions uh, that would be ta- that would be taken with respect to to ratification. I, I've seen some figures that um, this, if it's ratified, has the potential to um, increase Ireland's trade with Canada by approximately two hundred and fifty million euro. Two thirds of the government is in favour of ratifying this. There's there's obviously the Green Party who are still objecting to it. Do you have any sense of when this might move forward and will Ireland? Uh, eventually make some progress on this in ratification. Yeah, as I say, I mean, I think there's a, you know, there's a there's a parliamentary process that has been underway. Um, we haven't been given a particular date by which we would see uh, this process uh, coming back forward to Parliament. And as I say, we would certainly respect uh, that democratic process. And obviously, from a Canadian perspective, having ratified the agreement, you know, we're certainly encouraging all European countries and we would hope to see ratification happen uh, at some point in time. And do you think it's affecting um, Irish-Canadian investment at the moment in any negative way? Do you get any sense that there's a pullback because this isn't being ratified here? What we hear from the business community uh, is that, you know, ratification sends, uh, you know, sends a positive message just in terms of the overall recovery um, of uh, our respective economies. It certainly, you know, reinforces both Canada and the European Union, um, you know, understand the importance of open economies, the role that trade agreements can play in promoting competition, innovation, um, and the kind of signal that it sets for, uh, uh, the kind of signal that it puts into place for, you know, for future possibilities for uh, for growing that, that trade. And I think certainly if you look historically, uh, just in the last couple of years, the ways in which that those uh, figures have have really risen, um, we're now upwards of about seventy five companies that are Canadian companies that are operating here in Ireland. So we would have seen almost a, a doubling of that. You you've cited some other uh, figures in terms of potentials for growth, uh, but you know we we just think there's just a huge amount of opportunity um, between Canada and the EU broadly speaking, and then specifically within Ireland. Uh, we've seen, you know, such tremendous growth. So, so we would, uh, yeah, we would hope very much for continued, uh, you know, strengthening of that uh, economic collaboration. And we would also understand that within that context, it's also about the broader like-mindedness mm. that our, our our countries and our regions share, just in terms of that common value agenda. Um, I, I noticed that the Irish government have opened a new consular office in Vancouver in, in 2018 and I think another one is scheduled to open in Toronto 
later in 2022. So it seems that certainly from an Irish perspective, we're growing our presence there. Um, what is your ambition for your mission while you're here in Ireland? What would you like to do and progress? Yeah, thanks for that. And yes, just to say, give a shout out that we're really have been uh, extremely um, uh, excited about uh, the growth of the Vancouver office, but also, as you say, within the global strategy for Ireland, the commitment to open up that consulate in Toronto. We're really looking forward to that happening. We've just had Minister Troy in Canada uh, with about 30 companies. uh, And and again, just really underscoring that uh, opportunity, not only for trade, but also the importance of investment. And I suppose, you know, in terms of my time that's here, um, I mean, I would just really cite three things. We haven't talked as much about the people-to-people ties, but really that's the starting point of our relationships. Um, I'd like to see those some of those direct flights getting back. Uh, that's going to help uh, uh, the family and, and the people-to-people connections. That's going to help with the business connections. Um, so we'd like to see that return to exchanges, uh, whether that be uh, uh, in terms of students, in terms can of... Can I just pick you up on that point there? Because pre-pandemic, there was quite a bit of new traffic, wasn't there? Even that's from right. a tourism perspective. That's right. And certainly there would have been a huge amount of work that was done um, in terms of uh, uh, increasing those direct flights. In fact, um, colleagues at uh, Tourism Ireland tell me that uh, Canada has been uh, the ninth largest market. So we would have had actually uh, almost 250,000 visitors coming from Canada um, to Ireland in 2019. Um, that has implications for my tiny staff uh, that uh, helps on, on, on passports and, and, and consular um, knock on wood where we hope to see uh, very few consular cases. But um, that people to people strengthening post-COVID is something um, and within that, there's really important student populations and educational ties and other sorts of ties that relate to our common heritage. And then, of course, secondly, I'd like to uh, really see this economic collaboration continue to grow by leaps and bounds. And that means uh, our small uh, trade commissioner service team helping to support Canadian companies and helping to promote those opportunities that are there um, for our, our economies and our businesses to work together. Particularly, we talked about clean tech um, areas, uh, other uh, technology areas, uh, life sciences, biotech. So we think that there's a number of sectors and we'd like to see um, a focus on some of those. And then thirdly, you, I think you mentioned at the outset, the international cooperation is really a big part of our relationship. And so that uh, like-mindedness, which is really uncanny, uh, in many respects, uh, on the multilateral um, set of issues, we're in a really uh, turbulent time, and that coming together uh, as uh, Canada and Ireland uh, in collaboration, whether that be uh, within the UN, whether that be within other international bodies, within that be whether that be within uh, coalitions that we're both engaged with, such as um, the Equal Rights Coalition. These are all uh, examples of coalitions and areas where Canada and Ireland really are like-minded and within the broader EU community as well, um, where um, I'd like to certainly help to to continue to support that uh, collaboration in those areas of where we share those values around democracy, human rights and rule of law. Finally, before you go, Ambassador, can I ask you one question? You put Ireland down on your list. Is there anything <laughs> that has surprised you since you got here about Ireland? Uh, you know, I think I have been to Ireland a few times before this particular visit and uh, you were just asking me about the weather. So the weather hasn't entirely surprised me. 
Uh, in fact, I found it to be uh, remarkably sunny from time to time. I think it's been a very lovely. Yeah, we a get lovely... a bad rap on the sunshine. <laughs> yeah, there's a little bit Dublin more. Dublin certainly, people... <laughs> especially. Um, but, you know, I think I, I knew there was really a sense of sort of community. And what I want to really emphasize is that in addition to being in Dublin, I've had a chance to get out five or six times to other parts of the country. And I'm really looking forward to traveling uh, further uh, across this beautiful country. And so just the ways in which um, that community spirit has been so evident, including during these really trying COVID-19 times, has just been, you know, really, really uh, um, heartfelt. And uh, and I've just been really, really um, happy and uh, just feel really encouraged and supported by the warm hospitality that I've received. Well, Ambassador, a, a number of high-profile Canadians have been very actively involved over the years in a great deal of our, our initiatives internationally and also in the Northern Ireland peace process. And we've often looked to Canada for inspiration and assistance when it comes to health related solutions. So uh, let's hope our relationship continues to flourish and we wish you well in your mission here. But for now, we'll have to leave it there. That's the Canadian ambassador to Ireland, Nancy Smythe. Nancy, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks very much, Mandy. It's been a pleasure. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. Now, as President Erdogan pleads with the Turkish people to be patient and to trust his government's new economic model, just what kind of impact is the country's failing lira going to have on their citizens? To discuss now, I'm joined from Istanbul by Piotr Zaleski, who is Turkish correspondent for The Economist. Piotr, you're very welcome and thanks for joining us today on News Talk. Thank you for, for having me. Now, the lira has flirted with record lows this week, but Turkey's longtime leader is pressing ahead with what he calls his economic war of independence. Piotr, will you just give us an overview of what's happening with the economic situation there? I mean, the lira has been losing value against major currencies for some time now, um, but this year has been especially bad. The lira has now lost north of 45% of its dollar value in a single year, well, in less than a year. Mm. And last month alone, um, the drop was 30%. Uh, and this is you know, destroying uh, real wages um, and effectively impoverishing many Turks. So you know, say at the start of November, uh, you were making uh, 10,000 Turkish lira a month, which is actually a very respectable middle-class salary in Turkey. Um, at the start of November, that was worth $1,000. A month later, meaning today, uh, it, is less about, it is worth about $700. Again, $10,000 is you know, uh, a fairly good salary in Turkey still. Mm-hmm. Um, but bear in mind that the minimum wage here um, is much lower. And the minimum wage was worth the equivalent of $380 at the start of the year. Today, it is worth $200. Mm. So if, if you want to understand uh, what that currency crisis feels like to ordinary people, you know, imagine having your effective your real wage cut by almost half in less than a year. So, so why then, Piotr, in those circumstances, is President Erdogan pushing a model that critics uh, and everybody really who knows anything about economics would, would dictate that in dealing with soaring inflation, he's just going to make things worse. I mean, I think that's a question that has puzzled everyone in in Turkey. I mean, there is some uh, method to the madness by weakening uh, the currency, even even if that causes inflation. Um, 
by weakening the currency and triggering inflation, uh, you might be helping some uh, borrowers, um, assuming these are borrowers who do not uh, hold um, uh, Turkish lira. Uh, you might be helping some exporters, assuming those exporters do not rely on uh, suppliers who are based abroad, meaning that they're not too dependent um, on foreign currency. And you might be helping um, part of the construction sector. But uh, that doesn't represent the majority of Turkey. And in fact, um, most people uh, are left to deal with economic misery because their buying power, their purchasing power has been slashed and goes down every time the lira depreciates against the dollar. And the policy doesn't really seem to make economic sense. That's the charitable explanation. Mm-hmm. The less charitable explanation is that it doesn't make any political sense either because uh, Erdogan's supporters are not likely to thrive, uh, or at least the majority of his supporters are not likely to thrive in this climate, just the opposite. And it also raises another issue, which is really about control. Like exactly how independent or is is there any independence around the central bank in Turkey? He sacked uh, more than one of their governors and refused to act on their advice to increase interest rates. Could you just talk us about what the regulatory landscape, if there is any, um, looks like there? You could assume that the central bank has some, some wiggle room, but uh, those central bank governors who have challenged Erdogan in the past uh, have paid the price and they have got the axe. He has sacked, in fact, three central bank governors in under two years. The last was this spring. He has since sacked three members of the central bank's monetary policy committee, uh, which is uh, the committee in charge of setting the interest rate. And in doing so, he has effectively purged the central bank of supporters of high rates or supporters of monetary orthodoxy. And he has also forced the finance minister, one of the last, if not the last fig leaf of uh, monetary orthodoxy or economic orthodoxy in Turkey, uh, to resign. And what he's doing, most economists will say, is flying against the laws of economic gravity. He seems to think that cutting rates below the rate of inflation Mm. will not only help the economy, but will in fact lower inflation. Um, And I think most economists will tell you that that approach is bound to end in tears. Um, It has already weakened uh, the currency severely, and it is poised to drive inflation, which is already above 21%, even higher as a result. If you've just joined us, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston. We're talking to Piat Zaleski from The Economist magazine. And so what of the political opposition in Turkey? Um, I know that the opposition parties there have have called for snap elections and there's been some rallies uh, when we saw those slumps in November. But is there any sign of things changing in in the sense that there's a credible opposition to his policies? There doesn't really need to be a credible opposition to his policies for Turks to lose faith in him at this point. So the opposition is indeed getting its act together, but I think... Right now, this is a story less about the opposition gaining support and more about Erdogan losing support. The most recent polls will tell you that 
the opposition alliance, which is a coalition of two, de facto three main opposition parties, would trounce the governing alliance of Erdogan's Justice and Development Party and Turkey's biggest nationalist party if an election were held tomorrow. Uh, and Erdogan himself would lose to any of the three uh, most likely opposition candidates in a putative runoff for the presidency. So things for him do not look well. The opposition would like to capitalize on the current economic crisis and uh, have snap elections um, as soon as possible. But Erdogan, for the time being, is excluding that. Can we just stand back a little bit from the economy for a moment? Because in a geopolitical sense, Turkey is always very interesting to me because it straddles both Europe and Asia. Um, that crossroads position between the East and the West um, provides it with several sort of geopolitical possibilities. Um, you're obviously best placed to, to, to tell our listeners about that. Could you just talk about its strategic importance I'd say that Turkey is of vital strategic importance uh, for several reasons. Um, it is a, a big NATO member. It is considered, by some at least, to be something of a bulwark against Russian influence in the Black Sea and in the Caucasus. And it is also Europe's gateway to the Middle East. In the same vein, Turkey is the Middle East's um, gateway uh, to Europe. And that's something worth bearing in mind, um, especially in the context of uh, the migration crisis that played out in 2015-2016, when millions of migrants and refugees reached Greece and Europe via Turkey. And so Europe would has every interest in keeping Turkey stable because it is uh, a, a route for uh, migrants and refugees attempting to reach Europe, and because itself it could be a source of instability on Europe's uh, doorstep. And do, where do you think its strategic interests lie now? Is, is it with the US? Is it with the EU? And and has that door closed on the EU uh, trying to get Turkey to be, to be part of it in the longer term? To answer the last of those questions, it looks like any prospect of uh, Turkish accession to the EU is off the table. They have been negotiating for nearly 15, 16 years at this point, and those negotiations have led nowhere. It seems that Europe is quite afraid of letting in a country as big as Turkey mm. and a Muslim-majority country um, uh, as big as Turkey. And Turkey's human rights record and Turkey's record on rule of law and democracy is bad enough where it simply would not qualify for EU membership, which is also you know, something that offers those Europeans um, who oppose Turkish membership in the EU a convenient excuse. Uh, they will point to Erdogan's uh, record. They would point to the state of uh, Turkish democracy to say that this Turkey has no place in the EU. I think the fear is that e even a democratic Turkey might have uh, no place in the EU simply because the EU is no longer interested in enlargement. But you asked about Turkey's strategic interests, and those still lie um, in the West. The EU is Turkey's number one trade partner, number one investment partner, and the US is still Turkey's uh, most important military partner and supplier of arms. The problem is that Turkey is now increasingly estranged from all of its Western allies and has begun to pursue 
a closer relationship with countries like Russia uh, and China. And that is causing some unease in Western capitals. Yeah, of course, the fear would be that on that side, you could possibly end up with that Russian, Chinese, Turkey, you know, with with all of them, I suppose, on, on one side versus um, the West. And that that um, d- d- doesn't really hold out a, a positive prospect in terms of where diplomacy might land. Can we just look again at the short term and what you think um Piot would happen uh, with er- Erdogan in, in the short term in terms of his economic policies and, and how you think things are going to develop uh, there? There is some exposure. There is some possible um, contagion um, in Europe and elsewhere. Um, but because of its incredibly unconventional position, mm-hmm. um, Turkey is something of an outlier among emerging markets. So um, the risk of contagion um i would say is you know relatively limited in the short term um but the knock-on effects in terms of the danger to um, turkey's stability well those might be uh more immediate and, and more severe well we'll have to watch with uh interest piot that was a fascinating insight and thank you so much for spending some time and taking us through it today and um, that's Piotr Zaleski who's the Turkish correspondent for The Economist. Piotr, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock and we're joined now by Neil McCabe who's Director at Grown Forest and CEO of The Green Plan. Neil, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Mandy. So Neil, you might start by telling us uh, what is Green Plan and how did it all get started? Well, the Green Plan started um, completely by accident in Dublin Fire Brigade uh, back in 2008. And we had a morale problem kind of in the station because it was a very old fire station and there was a brand new sexy fire station um, after being opened up in Swords. So it was kind of a, the next neighbourhood up, you could say. And we lost 50% of the crew to that fire station. And of course, that caused the morale to really plummet in, the, in their, our own fire station. And I'm kind of a a real doer so i wanted to do something to to get people you know to, i didn't know what the hell to be doing to be honest but i decided to get a cardboard box and i thought i just put on the side of it used batteries here and of course within a month the the fire crew in the fire station had filled the box with used batteries and at the time there was no eu directive or anything like that or any ruling on where you put used batteries so they went into landfill and all of a sudden we had this kind of default kind of backbone idea that we didn't want to throw the batteries away and we all wanted to be part of something and over the course of a year all these i came up with lots of little ideas and lots of little projects and so many of them failed but eventually we got a kind of robust plan that worked and that plan was given a name and was called the green plan and within the first year we'd actually saved back just almost ten thousand euro of what was formerly a utility bill or energy bill um spending so by the end of the second and third year this this all these ideas had started to save and save and save and before long i was asked to actually take the existing the Kabarak fire station and turn it into a flagship and template for the rest of the fire brigade to follow so kind of the the red letter day for the fire brigade was that you know fast forward several years and we'd actually in a four-year period saved 11 million euro of taxpayers money on the running of the fire brigade because the energy spend was less because of the green plan and of course you can imagine the knock-on 
effects um, and impacts on the environment that traveled all around because of that. And then where it got really exciting was because each fire station that had the model then took on the model and built the template into their fire station and that made more and more savings. Then that spread into Dublin City Council. And before long, there was this kind of, you know, in essence, a green revolution. And we were just basically, I got people to focus on saving money. But the real win was that the environment was winning at the same time. I think, you know, if you say to people a lot of the time to concentrate on the environment, it can become boring and you can't really see the impact. But we all love to save money. So you can always see the impact of money, you know. And the, so what happens is that, that people acquire a green plan accreditation as a result of it, is it? So how many people are signing up to it now? Has it extended beyond the, the fire service? Yeah, well, that's that's the real exciting story. Um, in 2012, the fire station was recognised formally by many different world authorities as being completely carbon neutral. And that kind of spurred me on um, in a social entrepreneurial way to develop a course called The Green Plan, um, which I launched and gave away for free. Um, and it's now in 164,000 communities around the world where wow. people have trained up as the Green Plan champion. And then in business terms, a lot of corporates and companies have, have taken on board the Green Plan um, as an actual accreditation for their business to follow. And like, you know, to say loosely, if you follow the steps, you know, one to seven, well, you're going to reduce your carbon footprint by 10% in the first year. If it's, you go to one to seven the following year, it's probably up to 25% carbon reduction. And of course, the focus for business is the more you can reduce your carbon, the less your utility spend is anyway. And of course, that's where the, the savings fund comes in. And, and uh, that's where the people have been really stimulated by it in business terms. Yeah. And just on those savings, can you just talk to me a little bit about the figures that Dublin Fire Brigade has saved? Yeah, we were. I mean, in, in the first fire station in Kilbarrick, uh, we had reduced utility bills from the start of the project till the day it was officially recognised as what we had done uh, of 48,000 euro in the in the first in the in the, the period of implementation and of course that became a ring fence saving fund which was sent to the next fire station which was up in fibsborough and that made a saving of thirty three thousand euro but just simply following the plan things like recycling batteries actually selling them on uh changing how we how we get our energy uh changing procurement for life-saving equipment putting in LED lighting. All, in fact, so much of, of these projects are now the norm, which is the probably my, my proudest moment, is that these things have become norm, where they were actually trialled in Kilbarrick Fire Station when they were, they were harebrainer ideas, you know, this yeah. kind of thing. Um, but collectively, the fire brigade reduced. We, we spent 3.6 million euro on procuring all the different um, pieces of equipment and technology. And that came from the ring fence saving fund where the, the actual energy was not used. So the money had become available. And then in return, uh, the return on investment was 11 million euro savings in a four year period. You're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston. We're talking to Neil McCabe, who's director at Grown Forest and CEO of The Green Plan. And um, you mentioned there that there's 164,000, I think you said, operations around the world. Can you just talk to me a little bit about the international dimension of this? Um, you've had quite a few heavy hitters interested in this programme, haven't you? Yeah, it's my, my story is just I, sometimes I can't keep up with it myself, to be honest, Mandy. Um, it's, you know, 
one day we used to make a joke in the fire station that one day I'd be driving a, an ambulance on a, you know, a Sunday night and I'd meet President Obama on the Monday morning. And then it happened in real life. Um, <laughs> I gave away the course for free all around the world. I mean, these, these community champions, you know, even if they save 5% emissions, uh, which is all obviously verified and audited, but once, once they make the saving, they can't wait to tell me what they're after doing. And collectively we're into, you know, hundreds of thousands of tons of emissions at community level that's being saved. And uh, along the way, the ambassador, the American ambassador invited me in to um, talk to him about the idea of, could we roll out something to do with the green plan in America? Um, and we ended up calling it going green for social good. And literally a, a few weeks later, I'd got the invite from president Obama to travel to America and to work in the white house and work, um, around different States in America and spreading this going green for social good, uh, message. So it was really exciting for me because in essence, I actually really did work the, fire, work the fire engine and the ambulance and a few days later travel off to America for a month. Yeah, what was that like for you just to go to the White House and see your 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 initiative that started at the, the counter in Kilbarrick? What was that as an experience? It, I, I, to be honest with you, I, I still kind of look back and laugh. I, I can't, I nearly can't remember it. It happened so quick and like the, we did a whistle stop tour of America um, I became an alumni of the Department of State, so I got trained in all things America, um, like every single system, all the legal systems, and the, the end product for America was to create a transatlantic corridor of trade. Now, this is outside of TTIP, which was going mm -hmm. on at the time. Yeah. This was an actual Ireland and America, and how much business can we bring across the Atlantic to and from? Um, you're also, and, sorry, I just wanted to get to the EU dimension as well um, to talk about your role as an advisor on some of the directives there. Could you just talk to me about, about that aspect, how that came about? Yeah, it's kind of similar to the, to the America story. I, I was involved in, a, in the writing of a procurement document um, for procurement legislation for Dublin City Council. And at the time, um, I'd started to kind of cross paths with a lot of, of like, you know, urban planners, um, really heavy hitters in the procurement world and one thing brought it another and as the, the document was being published I was advised to become an expert analysis on an EU project which I took up and then before long I was actually co-authoring um, a directive for air quality and a different directive for water quality and then I stayed on on several projects as an expert advisor to the EU and I'm kind of still involved in a lot of procurement projects for the EU at the moment but it definitely kind of gave a, a broadened network and say spectrum to the projects from the green plan and their humble beginnings in the fire brigade but how applicable they were and then with the whole eu us um kind of momentum it really it kind of it, it speeded up this the, the the pace that the green plan took hold in so many different organizations it's an incredible uh, success story. Neil, before we finish up today, I just wanted to ask you about your an, another initiative that you're involved in. You're director at Grown Forest um, and you plant native trees here in Ireland. Can you just talk to us about that and what the goal is? Yeah, well, at the moment, we're trying to plant 300,000 native Irish trees in Ireland by the year 2030. Uh, where we got our start was, this is a, a fascinating story. I had won the Green Leader award in Ireland for the second time in six years and it was a big deal for my family and I and we were all very proud and you know you, you can't actually apply for the award you, you, you get given the award 
And um, I was just pulled up outside by, uh, by a particular journalist that said, it's great that you've won such an award again, but where did you get your clothes? And um, luckily, the answer I was able to say was, well, I own my own clothing company. And we've just won separately. We've also won, you know, small business of the year, um, best product of the year. And we've the most eco clothing, let's say, that you could possibly buy. But that company planted a tree for every garment we create, even if we don't sell the, tri- the, the garment. Of course, that turned into thousands of trees, Mandy, and we didn't know what to do next. So we actually took all the profits from, from almost eight years of the clothing company and started to purchase land around Ireland to plant the trees in. And we set up a new company, Grown Forest, to actually go and manage and plant those trees. And of course, the, the wish turned into the dream or the dream turned into the wish. And eventually, we now have that the trees are legally protected and will never be cut down. And they'll outlive many generations. So at the moment, it's kind of the perfect gift for Christmas. People are very interested and excited by it. For me, I mean, it's a it's a terrific feeling to think that from saving batteries in Kabarak Fire Station to planting literally, you know, thousands and thousands of trees and to see that it's a good gift at christmas but it's a real good gift for the environment so it kind of hits every every tune um it's just been a a really good happy time just before we leave that i just wanted to ask you are you encountering any difficulties presumably there's there's a big scale in, in terms of planting all those trees is it is it a huge operation um, it hasn't. I haven't found any difficulty yet in the sense that we, we buy the land, we take it over. We've been working on land that's been um, regrettably been, you know, over intensively farmed. And over time, these pieces of land can can become uh, in need of, of restoration. But like the projects go on in the background and then all of a sudden there's trees being planted. So I haven't encountered difficulty yet. And Certainly, uh, with the amount of people that are on board and wanting us to plant on land, it's uh, it's it's very exciting, Wendy, I have to say. Nearly sound like a very busy man. Are you still a fireman, can I ask you? Still a fireman and paramedic with Dublin Fire Brigade. Well, listen, best of luck with your ventures. And as Neil said, it's it's a great um, idea for a Christmas present to think that you're buying something that's sustainable and, and giving back to the planet. OK, we leave it there. That's Neil McCabe, who's director at Grown Forest and CEO of The Green Plan. Neil, thanks for joining us. Thanks very much, Mandy. Nice to talk to you. Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock. Now, while we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings, we're also available as a podcast first from Friday mornings on the News Talk app. We've got a bit more time in the podcast, so there are extended conversations with our guests today. My thanks to the team of Simon Keane and Mick McCarthy with Jojo Cardoso on sound. Jonathan McRae is up next with Future Proof, and then it's Gavin Riley with On The Record. So from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, enjoy the rest of your day. <laughs>